So how do you get the hand of the Lord upon you? How do you get the hand of the Lord upon you? Now someone say, I'm not sure I want the hand of the Lord upon me. If it's like, like a police officer trying to like arrest me, I don't know if I really want that. Maybe God needs to stop you in your tracks and you just yell freeze, right? You just stop what you're doing. You're hurting yourself. The Apostle Paul had to freeze. He had been zealously persecuting the church because he thought he was serving God. Then the resurrected Christ showed up in a vision and explained to Paul that his zeal didn't match up with his knowledge. He was acting in ignorance, which is a great lesson for us all. We may think that we're actually doing something good when we're actually hurting others and hurting ourselves. And it's not pleasing to God. If you're critical of the church and trying to bring it to account, you may be more opposed to Christ than for God. Paul was. He was blinded by the vision of Christ. Think of the irony. Paul was blindly harming Christ's bride, and he catches a vision of Christ, the resurrected Christ, and it blinds him physically, but it opens up his spiritual eyes. He was told in Acts 13, 11, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. I asked you earlier, did you want the hand of the Lord upon you? Is that the kind of hand of the Lord you want upon you? Maybe it's the best thing. That a blindness was actually a blessing for Paul, and maybe for you too. You can have the hand of the Lord upon you and experience suffering because God wants to teach you and use you in in really mind-blowing ways. So don't despise that suffering. However, when I asked, how do you get the hand of the Lord upon you? I was really meaning the hand of the Lord representing his favor, the Holy Spirit who lives in you. It's not just that we pray that the Holy Spirit has an atmosphere and changes the room, but that he changes us because he lives inside us. There are many people who do yoga and all sorts of things, saying they want God inside them. Guess what? You can get that for free. Jesus died on the cross for you. And if you believe in this Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in you and he lives in you. He's a person. He's not just a power. Do you want the hand of the Lord upon you? The prophet Ezekiel is described as having the hand of the Lord upon him. Jesus himself, even as a young child, was described in Luke chapter 2 verse 40 as having the favor of God upon him. And that's what I meant that the gracious and hand, gracious and favorable hand of the Lord be upon us. Man, that's what I want. Do you want that? Do you want like God's hand on you? Like, like my son here. Do you want God's hand on, on you? Blessing, favor. God would, would speak to you. Do you want that today? If you do, please turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. This is what we've been studying. You can look this up in the table of contents of your Bible. You can Google it. You can look up on your app, on a Bible study app, version app. And we're going to learn about Ezra. Ezra was a man who had 
the hand of the Lord upon him. And Ezra's name means the Lord has helped. I love that. The Lord has helped. I think that's a great name for a son. In fact, yesterday, uh, it was at a wedding, officiating a wedding in Woodstock, and there was this brand new baby boy, and his name was Ezra. And I was like, wow, I'd already got this sermon ready, and I was reminded, I said, that little baby's name means the Lord has helped. The Lord's going to help him. What an awesome name. So this to recap, um, we've studied the first six chapters of Ezra, and this is the first time that we actually have been introduced to Ezra himself. He wrote the book, he's an historian, and he writes the first 60 years from the time that the Jews came back from Babylon. They've been in exile because they cheated on God, and they've been brought back from Babylon to Jer- Jerusalem, and finally Ezra himself shows up. Ezra's one of the leaders in really a second wave of returnees, a new generation of returnees. And I hope today that you would be a new wave, be a part of a new wave of returnees to God and his work. So let's stand for the reading of God's word from Ezra, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Ezra, chapter 7, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 10. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sarai, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, the Lord, the God of Israel, given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand, notice this, of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, and the singers, and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was what? Was on him. Notice the repetition there. And then verse 10, a memory verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Before you sit down, let's actually try to memorize this verse. This really summarizes Ezra's whole approach to life. So let's say it all together. Ezra 7.10 For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Here, let's do it again. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Okay, let's do it without looking. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
And if we could do these things to, wow, our life would be tremendously blessed. You may be seated. <laughs> Today I'm going to tell you that this, this sermon's weighted more to teaching rather than preaching. But I, I don't want you just to engage your mind. I want you to also engage your heart. To have the Spirit of God who lives inside you to take full control, like I mentioned earlier. To live in that freedom so that your whole being, your body and mind and soul and heart would be engaged. I want to start out by introducing us to Ezra and then giving us three ways that we put ourselves into the position of receiving God's hand to be upon us. Now I put it that way because I don't want to communicate that this is some type of formula or that if you just live out these three ways that God will be forced to put his hand on you. You, can't, you cannot manipulate God. I actually believe God's hand was upon Ezra first and this stimulated the ways for Ezra to have the hand of God to continue to be upon him. And so why was God's hand upon Ezra? First of all, he was faithful to his calling. He was faithful to his calling. There was a bunch of big words there that I started off reading, wasn't there? In, uh, in Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And the list is Ezra's descendants, or actually his ancestors. Look what it says. Um, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Zariah, son of Hazariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Buki, can you imagine that name, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This is the genealogy of Ezra which all of a sudden elevates Ezra because not every biblical character has their genealogy. In fact, only a few of them. Adam. We have Noah. We have Abraham mentioned in genealogy. We have Jesus has a genealogy. These are, these are people who have, have great importance in the scriptures. In fact, some of Ezra's forefathers were famous. For example, Zadok was known because he was the priest during the reigns of King David and King Solomon. Then there's Phineas, was another well-known priest. That might jog some memories. He was very zealous. In fact, what he's known for is he took a spear when this Israelite male leader and a Midianite female leader who was, was leading the, the Israelites astray, both these two, they were fornicating and he threw a spear. Just be a right through the two of them. Phineas was very zealous for God. You read about that in Numbers 25, 1 through 13. And then there's Phineas' father, Eleazar, who was the third son of Aaron and who became a high priest after his brothers Nabab and Abihu were killed by God because they offered a strange fire. Do you think that you'd want to get things right if your brothers were killed by a strange fire? Because they offered up a strange fire. And finally, the start of the priestly line is mentioned, and that is Aaron himself. He was the brother of Moses, 
and the Israelites' spokesperson to Pharaoh when the Israelites were in Egypt. And the reason for mentioning all these names is that Ezra wants to make known that he belongs to a godly line of priests. He had a rich spiritual heritage. Anybody here have a rich spiritual heritage? You had maybe parents or grandparents who were Christians? Yeah. You cannot rest in your godly heritage, but you should rejoice in it. I'm a third-generation pastor. I'm really thankful for that. But I also realize that that means more responsibility. Not pressure to live up to their standards, but that I would continue on to pass on the faith to my kids. And I rejoice in that. Ezra rejoiced in his heritage, but he didn't rest in it. He built upon it. And because Ezra built upon that heritage, Ezra is regarded as a second Moses by some scholars and rabbis. And so how did Ezra build upon it? Well, look what verse 6 says. This is a key verse in this passage. He was a scribe. Second second part of the sentence there. Second sentence. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Stop there for a moment. That verse is pregnant with meaning. First, Ezra was a scribe. So what's so big about a scribe? Well, a scribe was somebody who copied down the scriptures so that the, the scriptures would not be passed from generation to generation without being lost. There were no computer servers in those days. There's no photocopiers in those days. There's no printing presses. And so the scribes were meticulous in copying the scriptures down, making sure that they were accurate from what the original manuscripts were. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were discovered in Israel, um, it was a great attestation of the fact that uh, what the scribes had copied down was accurate from the manuscripts that could be compared to other manuscripts. We can trust the Bible. We can trust the Bible. It has been passed down from generation to generation. It's accurate. But the biggest and best reason why we can trust uh, the Bible is accurate is because this is God's word. Do you not think that he want, wants to protect it? That he wants us to know it? That it will endure forever? That's what we believe here, that this is God's word. And so Ezra was a faithful scribe, but he was more. Because we know in Jesus' day, some of the chief priests and scribes were some of Jesus' most mortal enemies. So just because you're a scribe doesn't mean you're a good scribe. You can be a bad scribe. There were lots of bad scribes, but Ezra was a good scribe. Verse 6 also goes on to describe what, that Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Two things I want you to notice from this verse in verse 6 is one, Ezra was skilled in God's law and two, maybe even more important, God had given the law, which conveys that Ezra believed that God had given his word. In other words, Ezra knew, knew that this was God's word, and he wanted to be skilled in it. I would challenge you, if you believe this is really God's word, don't you want to be skilled in it? Don't you want to know it? Don't you want to understand it? Don't you want to be able to tell others? Don't you want to be able to obey it? God has written a book for you. Don't you think it's important to, to know it? 
That's what I try to explain to outsiders when some people say, well, what's the difference between churches? And it's not because of this, some are a little bit more exuberant in their worship or more stoic in their worship. It really comes down to whether they believe this book, that they take it at face value, that they take it seriously, that they preach the gospel. We had a family member who was recently um, being asked about uh, being recruited to a college. And uh, this college, when, we, when this family member asked about the church situation, what churches were around that area, they said, well, there's a bunch of churches. And we, as we looked into it, we found out not any church would do, right? It's not just going to church that counts. It's going to a church that is preaching the gospel. And I want to say that very humbly. I don't say that in a bragging way. I'm praying, and praying that the Temple Baptist Church would always be such a church that really believes God's word. That God's word is, is something that's taken seriously. That we study it, that we obey it, and that we teach it. Let me go back to that phrase, skilled in the law of Moses. That word skilled means versed. It literally means rapid. Ezra would be able to quickly point to God's word for answers. Do you want to have instant answers in all matters of life? Study this book. Study God's word. If the Bible does not speak to an issue specifically, it, likely, it most likely does in principle. There are issues today that we are faced with, right? Bioethical issues. For example, does life begin at conception? I believe the Bible teaches that life begins at conception. Look at Psalm 51. Then we can extrapolate and make ethical decisions based on that. Despite hostility to Christianity, people are still looking for answers. That's what I've discovered this is also true in Ezra's day. Notice in verse 6 how Ezra not only had favor with God, the king of kings, but also with lesser kings, such as King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Look what it says there. As we continue to read in verse 6, And the king granted him all that he asked. Why did he grant him all that he was asked? It's because he had been in God's word. He was skilled in the law of Moses. He had answers. Studying the Bible may put you before kings or other VIPs. Now, what did, what did Ezra ask for? Did he ask for money? Did he ask for power? He asked for pleasure? New vacation? No. Ezra asked that his fellow priests and especially the worship leaders of Israel be released and returned to Jerusalem. Look what it says in verses 7 through 9. And there went up also to Jerusalem... In the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites and the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants, and he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for, what does it say there again? The good hand of his God was on him. Notice that phrase again. I can't help but think of our worship leader, Curtis, and 
His lovely wife, Shannon. Sorry I didn't bring you up here, Shannon. I didn't realize you were down there. I wanted to, um, to say you've served so faithfully. And uh, this is the last day we, we have with you before you return to your homeland. May God's rich and gracious hand be upon you. There's nothing wrong with wanting to go home to serve your people, is there? Ezra wanted to go home and he wanted to increase the worship of God in his homeland. And this is honoring to God. And may that also be true for you, Curtis. What Ezra did when he went to God to his homeland, I think he'd actually been doing for some time. You see, it actually took about three and a half months to reach his destination. He didn't make a beeline from Babylonia to Jerusalem. It was too hot. There was a desert. So he went around, and it took about three and a half months. And the, the scriptures don't say this, but there was, there was a time of him actually doing the scriptures, of praying and fasting, relying upon God. Ezra had been relying upon God and practicing his word before he ever got a platform for ministry. Some of us think we need to platform too quickly without putting the hard work of study into God's word. Seek God before grandeur. Ezra did. And the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. So how did that happen? Well, Ezra made three practices that helped him reach out to God, and God's hand continued on him. And here's the three things. Number one, I want to write these down. He studied God's word. Two, he obeyed God's word. And three, he taught God's word. This comes directly from our memory verse that we read earlier. Ezra 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. How do you get the hand of the Lord upon you? Study obey and teach God's word. And you probably should add, and do it in that order. Do it in that order. In the short time remaining that I have with you this morning, I want to teach you how to study, obey, and teach God's word. God has done a lot of things at this church. And um, do you remember when he talked about the lethargy that happens in success? There's just a renewed... Um, desire in my heart that we would be in God's word and we'd be praying. We'd be a, a house of prayer. We'd be committed to God's word. So I, I would challenge you. Did you notice that soap strategy that Wayne Cordero, he mentioned about Wayne Cordero? I learned that many years ago. And uh, I've been practicing it for many years. And let me just go over it with you. This is something that I'm going to give to you. You can use. If you have other strategies, perfect. If it's working with you to can we have that intimacy with the Lord, Great. Write the scripture down, that's the S. Write the scripture down that jumps out at you as you read the Bible. God, if you pray, God's going to bring something to mind. He wants to speak to you. Then make observations, questions. You can use the, you know, who, what, when, why, all those questions. Any of those things that kind of jump out. Then make an application. Lord, how does this apply to my life? And then finally, the P is to write out a prayer to God. I write it in first person, my journals, to God based on Scripture. It's something I've been practicing every day. This, when people ask me, how do you know God's Word? It's just this. This is nothing. There's nothing. There's no secret. It's just talking to God, listening, reading His Word every day. 
And that soap strategy will help the bride of Christ by the cleansing of the washing of the word. I love that, as Ephesians 5, 26 says. I would encourage you, if you've, if you've got some of these soap stories, that you would come back tonight and that you would, you would share. and Read a scripture that God has used in your life. We did this last Sunday night. It was wonderful. We expect you to be reading and listening to God's word every day. This is one of the specific commitments that you've made, all you members who've signed the membership agreement, where we're all pulling in the same direction because we're committed to these things, making disciples. And why? Too often we rely on other study, other study of God's word. We, we rely on well-known Bible study authors or pastors or theologians. It was, this would be akin to eating only what others have prepared, whether it be like fast food, takeout food, or even your mom's home-cooked meal. Your mom's cook, home-cooked meal is awesome, isn't it, right? And hopefully the pulpit ministry here at Temple will be home-cooked meals for you. But... If you never learn how to cook yourself, how are you going to continue to grow? We want you to study and to prepare yourself. We want you to have these tools, knowledge, so that you can make your own nutritious meals on God's Word. So try the SOAP Bible reading method to cleanse you and fill you each day. I don't know if Ezra used the SOAP Bible reading method. He probably didn't, okay? But he was a model reformer in that what he taught, he first lived. And so permit me to quickly teach you how to study God's word. The first is just that devotional reading with soap. That's what I do. This other thing that I do, and then I've learned since then many more add-ons to it as I studied the original languages, but I want to learn what I call base. It's something I learned 25 years ago from Dr. Harry Shields at Moody Bible Institute. And I hope to post a video of some teacher training that I did with our church a few years back on our website so you can look at this. But this method, method has really stuck with me, and you don't need to follow it exactly. And there are other Bible study methods, but let's find out one that works for you. Here's, I'm going to walk you through this, okay? Um, and, and I have copies of this. You can actually pick this up. It's called BASE. The basis of how to study the Bible, you can have copies after the, um, the service at the Welcome Center. The first thing you need to do is to pray, okay? You ask God to show you what his words mean and how it applies to your life. So you start with prayer. Then you go to the background. This includes observations, and you start by asking questions like, well, who wrote it? And when did it get written? And, and to whom did this author write it? And you can look these things up um, in uh, exhaustive concordances or um, commentary study Bibles. Then look at the context. You read the verses surrounding the verses before and after the passage to get a feel for what's going on. You look for such key words as therefore by asking what is it therefore. Repetition of words like we read in Ezra, right? When you see the hand... Of the, of the Lord as God was on him in verse 6, and then you see it repeated in verse 9, that's a clue. God's trying to say, hey, pay attention. I'm repeating this. And then write down the characters and their importance, and never forget that God is a part of the characters in the Scripture. Write down what's going on in the text. Write down any questions you have from the passage. 
There's lots of times I'm like, I don't understand what this means. I'm going to write that down. I'm going I'm to try to study that some more. And then there's the analysis. So B stands for background. A is for analysis. And you start asking the tough questions. Like, what's the author trying to say? What is God saying about the passage's particular subject? Are there other passages in the Bible that deal with this subject? And then there's a summary. So you write down in a sentence what this passage means. And you're forming kind of the big idea of the passage. And then there's the execution, which involves application. And here's where you pray and you memorize the scripture. And you say, how does this relate to my, my family life at home? How does this relate to my work life or my school life or my community life or my life on the sports field or wherever? How does this relate to my life? I'd encourage you to try this basic study of God's word. Now, when I first started out pastoring, I had to buy all these tools. I had an exhaustive concordance, an atlas. Uh, this is a Greek synopsis of the Gospels, Greek lexicon, an encyclopedia, a dictionary. Um, here's an interlinear with Hebrew and English, Greek and English. You, we, you know, this is, this is hard to carry around. I just want to let you know. This is an awesome book, the ESV Study Bible. I really encourage you to get this, to invest. Now, my dog Remy has also eaten this. He loves, he loves Bibles for some reason and, and sermons. But um, this book will help you so much. There's also so, uh, like online software, Logos, that will help you. And, and the key point is get into God's Word. You've got to study God's Word. And I... None of you can say you haven't been taught now this, okay? So I want you to be able to learn this yourself. How do you obey it? Well, here's what you do. You, you've studied God's word and you say, God, I desperately need you. I need you to help me to do this. Isn't it awesome that he tells us what to do in his word and he also helps us to do it? Like, how great is that? So you pray and you think about, okay, what am I going to do with this? What is one way that I can share this message or I can, tell, I can, I can live it out today? And then the last part, so you've, you've, you've studied it, you've obeyed it, and then I'm going to teach you how to, te to teach it, okay, in this most simple way. And I got this from my Christian education class at Moody 25 years ago as well. And I call it the boy, book, boy, Son method, okay? If you want to call it the girl, book, girl, son method, that's cool too. But the boy, book, boy, son method. And the first boy, and this is how I remember it is, I want to introduce the topic to, to whoever I'm speaking to. And then I, in a, in a general way. And then I move to the book, which is, the book is the word of God, right? And then I try to apply it. And the most simple of lessons and sermons follow this very simple boy-book-boy boy method. What I have since learned after understanding the more gospel orientation is that the Son, which is Jesus Christ, is the one who helps you fulfill these things. And so you pick a topic. Somebody just shout out a topic, and I'll try to teach you how I did this. And anybody got a topic? Pardon? Hell. On hell? Okay. Wow. 
So there's a lot of people today that they don't, they don't really think that there's a hell, right? Then there's, um, there's a, a lot of people who would say, how could God, how could God ever send anybody to hell? Well, does God's word actually say about this? Would you like to take a look? So all of a sudden you notice the question I asked. And so then I would say, well, do you think it's important that Jesus, Jesus knew about hell? Yes. Okay, let's turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. And here's where I would read the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, notice I'm only able to do this, right? I'm only able to recall something in the scripture if I've actually read it. I've been studying it ahead of time. And as you've studied over the years, verses will come to mind. So there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. More even, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or that's hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. I find it very interesting that Lazarus is the, the homeless guy. The, in our context, no one would know his name, right? We don't know the homeless people that we see at the Delta but we know the rich people that we see on, on People magazine. But Jesus reverses this, right? And he said in verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, the rich man, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to and none may cross from there to us. Notice the separation. That's what hell's about. There's separation. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they may also come into this place of torment. Notice that there's no second chances. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus makes clearly that there is this hell. There's a choice. There's a choice today. Which are you going to be? Here's the application, the boy. Which are you going to be? Are you going to be like the rich man or like Lazarus? You're going to experience separation from God, or are you going to be in the bosom of God, be with Him for all eternity? God loves us enough to cause us, as C.S. Lewis says, to not be forced to live with Him forever if we don't want to be with Him. Lazarus wanted to be with Him. And here's the great news. The reason why we don't have to go to hell is because Jesus experienced separation from his father. That's what last weekend was all about, wasn't it? Jesus cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because Jesus was separated, we don't have to be. 
You see what I did there on that topic? No, I'm praying as I'm, as I'm, I'm trying to pray as I'm preaching and teaching this. God, give me the right verse. But see how you can take the scriptures and you can use this boy, book, boy, son model to teach others. Now, some of you say, well, you know what, John? I don't have the gift of teaching. In fact, James 3.1 warns, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I believe what James is actually warning that many of us should avoid is to take on the role as authoritative teacher in a church unless you're qualified in character and called to that and gifted. It's also important that if you're a small group leader or a next chapter teacher or, or, or Sunday school teacher that you come to hear the messages to be fed and align with the church's teaching position. We, like, I consider you an extension of our pulpit ministry as teachers. In fact, I invite more of you to get involved by sending illustrations to me that may be helpful, that we would all understand that we're, we're learning together. Be part of my sermon research team. I'm always looking for more stories, more ways that we can grow in God's word. In a sense, you are all called to teach. We're all called to teach one another. As Colossians 3.16 reminds us, to let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms of thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we parents, we're supposed to teach our children in a walk-along, talk-along discipleship of God's word. Deuteronomy 6-7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. That means the commands of God and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It's not just a formal lesson. It's being things that are taught to your children as you, as you go on in life. So we are all called to teach at least those closest to us, whether that be your family or small group. Maybe there's somebody in your family new to the faith. You need to grab them and say, I want to disciple you. I want to teach you God's word. Let's use, that, let's use what you've been taught today, that base model. Let's do it. Let's pray. Let's, let's seek together. Let's disciple one another. My friends, do you want the hand of the Lord to be upon you? Study, obey, and teach in that order. That's what Christ did. Remember he studied the scriptures as a young boy. He, he was at the temple. He actually got lost in the temple because he was studying the scriptures, talking to the rabbis. He certainly obeyed it. He, he obeyed them perfectly. That's why he could die on that cross as a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was the greatest teacher of all. He taught us the way to God. He taught us the scriptures because he was the way to God. In fact, without Jesus' study and obedience and teaching, you and I would not be here today and we would not be saved. Do you see how critical it is to study and obey and teach God's word? In an ever-increasing biblically illiterate society with more resources than we've ever had in the history of the world, which doesn't make sense, right? Don't you think it's time that you personally study and obey and teach God's word. It's time to take it to the next level in every way. You've been taught. Let's go now, trust and obey. I'm gonna call our worship team up to, to sing. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just, we just thank you for this 
this word, this word of God that you've given to us is so precious. I delight in the law of the Lord. This is my hope. This is where I'm, I'm staking my life on. And I pray that all of us would. I pray that we would, we would study your word. We would obey it. And we would teach it to others. We pray because Jesus did so. And in his name, amen.